This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. New York City is full of rags to riches stories, but few have a story to tell quite like billionaire John Katsimatidis. Born in Greece, emigrated to Harlem as a child, a baby, eventually dropped out of college to work full-time in the grocery business. Today, that business, which includes the Gristidis chain of supermarkets, has transformed into Red Apple Group, a conglomerate with interests in everything from real estate to energy refining and WABC Radio, where he hosts a roundtable program. Katsimatidis is also a prominent political player, running for mayor back in 2013 and donating to everyone from President Clinton to President Trump. In his new book titled, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire, he reflects on the secrets to his success, lessons he's sharing with us tonight. John, welcome. Always nice to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me on. So I want to start with the book, and then we've got some politics for us to talk. But over the years, your story is so fascinating that so much has been written about you and your background, your history. Why did you decide that now was the time for you to write about you? Well, I, I, I started to think about it uh, when I hit 70 years old. Uh, and I said, uh, before I get Alzheimer's or anything like that, uh, let me write it down so my kids and my grandkids and grandkids, great-grandkids will know who's paying the tuition. Um, and and uh, that was important to me. And I wanted to write down a little bit about our history so they all know about it. Uh, that was one good reason. Uh, then COVID hit. So we, we, we put it on the shelf for a year or so or two years. And um, I, I did consider running again uh, in um, for mayor in 2020. Uh, but, uh, or 2021, uh, but uh, the way politics was going right now, I, I was saying to my, my God, what the heck is going on? And I do want to talk with you about, about that, about some of your thoughts on, on politics, because you do talk about it in the book. And, and, and the second reason I wrote it is, you know, I'm chairman of the Police Athletic League in New York, you know, Mr. Morkenthorpe. Uh, who's probably turning over in his grave right now with things going on, uh, is, is uh, um, he trained me to help the kids of our inner city. So I want, uh, you know what I tell uh, my friends and people that are buying my book? Make sure you buy some extra books so you can give it to your sons, your daughters, and your grandkids because maybe it can make a difference in their life. And when I go into Harlem and to see the kids in Harlem and, and, and we're dedicated to helping those kids because that's where I came from. I, you know what I say to them? I say, I, I'm here. I'm from here, too. I made it. You can make it, too, because what these kids need is mentors. What these kids need is people to give them advice. And uh, I write in my book that uh, I had a lot of gray hairs. 
you and whether it's the real estate industry, whether it's the food industry, I always went to my friends, the guys with the gray hairs, and we we got our own now, <laughs> and, and asked them for advice, mm-hmm. and it was tremendously helpful. Yeah. So helping uh, uh, the kids of tomorrow, I am very much concerned about our education system. Can you believe we're number 56 in the world in education? And we spend the most. We probably pay, spend more than all 56 nations together. I mean, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but it's it's very, very sad right. that our kids are not getting educated properly. Yeah, yeah. And what's going to happen? I had a U.S. senator in my uh, uh, office uh, two weeks ago, and, you know, uh, my concern was, I said, Senator, I'm concerned the way our kids are being educated, the way our kids are being attacked with this drugs and fentanyl, that 2076, the 300th year of our country, we may not make it. It is concerning, obviously. And you do talk about all of that. And I want, I want to come back to some political things in a moment. But uh, I want to ask you one thing. You, you, you say in your book, you write that your words, the American dream doesn't come with an instruction manual or a page at the end that says, okay, you can stop now. You've arrived. And a, a good portion of your advice here, and I want you to share it with us now, has to do with that notion of, is there an end point? Or should there always be an end point in your jersey where you say, your journey where you say, okay, I'm, I'm done here. What do you say to these young people that you're mentoring? Well, it's your choice. And, I, and when I say to them, to these young people, that success comes with uh, sacrifice. You know, uh, you know why, why I'm not a big football fan? Because I worked seven days a week. And when everybody was watching the football games, I was working. You know why I'm not a Mets fan in New York? Because when the Mets didn't exist. I was working during those period of, uh, period of time. And I was always a Yankee fan. Mm-hmm. I remember my grandfather taking me to the Yankee game when I was six years old. I, you know, there's certain things you don't forget. And... Uh, those are the things I wanted to put in the book. Great memories of growing up, great memories of teaching the kids. Uh, and uh, th- that's what it's all about. New York is the greatest city in the world. And I believe in New York. I believe New York is going to make a comeback. But in the last 24 months, 500,000, 484,000 people have left New York. I mean, I you know what I tell the politicians, both sides, in Albany and in New York? I said, who's going to pay the taxes because those 484,000 people that left are the ones that are paying the taxes? And those are the ones. You guys want to raise the budget. That's great. Give all yourselves raises. Give all yourselves more money. But who's going to pay it? Somewhere along the line, the uh, what's the old expression? It's going to hit... It's going to hit the crapper. This sort of ties into your book and the advice you give. You mentioned New York City. And I'm curious if you think that 
that New York City itself was an essential ingredient in in your success. We talked about uh, you were you were a handful of credits away from graduating from NYU, magnificent academic institution, and you said to your family, "I'm starting my my professional business here in the grocery store." So you had educational opportunities, you had business opportunities. What role did New York City play? Do you think in your no? It, it's a little bit different. Uh, I didn't drop out. I was eight credits short. Right, because right. in my senior year, yep. in my junior year, my senior year, I already had a business. Mm-hmm. I worked seven days a week. I worked till one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and and somehow that calculus class, I never finished. <laughs> I, I, looked I, can, at those I can understand that. I was a history major in college, and I, I had a problem with the calculus class. I, I looked at those calculus equations. I said, how is that going to help me make a dollar? <laughs> and... and and I, I got into business when I was a senior in, in college, and and it, and it just the, the I was eight credit short, and yep. and uh, John Sexton, the president of NYU, oh, I know uh, well, by a, the way, I know John well. Guy. I thought I, I thought at NYU, him. wonderful man. Yeah, and uh, you know what I said? He said to me, uh, "Why don't you come back and 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 finish uh, those eight credits?" I said, "John, why don't I come back and teach?" Teach a course. Even a better, an even better idea. We, we we've got uh, we've got about four or five minutes here, and I want to touch base on a couple of things here. Let's go back to to politics because you've talked about the book, and it's it is a marvelous book. It gives such great life stories that are inspirational. Here, let's talk today, and 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 you mentioned problems with politics. I guess my my and you have, as you mentioned, you have supported Democrats, you've supported Republicans in the past. Uh, let's talk about some current situations. Do would you see yourself? We know that. President Trump, former President Trump, has declared he's running a game. Do you see yourself supporting him again this time around? You know, I know Donald Trump for 40 years. Uh, you know, uh, he was a member of the Police Athletic League board. But I, it's not knowing him. In other words, he's more of an acquaintance because a, a friend is a person you call up and say, what are you doing for dinner tonight? He's not a friend. He's an acquaintance. I think he did a great job in many things. He was our country was well well respected internationally. Uh, the joke I used to tell uh, on the radio is President Trump terrorized the terrorists. Uh, then we have Bill Clinton. I adore the man. I think he was the smartest president we ever had. Uh, I used to run those dinners at at, at the uh, Jefferson Hotel in Washington. Democrats and Republicans, 20 people in a room with the, with the president for two hours. Not a single Democrat, not a single Republican ever walked out of that room saying, I'm disappointed. Why do you think, and, and you know, people always talk about the good old days. Well, the good old days weren't always so great in terms of bipartisanship. But we hear people say, and it's probably accurate, we're, we're not talking about partisanship now. We're talking about tribalism here. Why do you think? There, there. You probably wouldn't have the ability to put twenty people, both parties, in a room today. Do you think? And why not? Very, very hard. I have that ability because I know both sides and I respect both sides. And my only problem, the I, I know, I know common sense Democrats. Mm-hmm. I've had Andrew Cuomo on my show the last few weeks. I've had uh, and and. Governor Patterson is a regular, common sense Democrats. I believe the problem we have today is that common sense Democrats 
are not standing up against the lunatunes, the people that want to change our way of life. And that's the problem. And I encourage all the common sense Democrats, stand up against the people that want to change our, our city. They want to change our country. Stand up against them. What we, about we what about do you see sense common sense? Do you see common sense Republicans that you need to either find or encourage to do the same thing? I hate. I I am a person in the middle. I dislike yeah. extreme left wingers. I dislike extreme right wingers. I believe in common sense, and and we all should sit down. Look, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. They didn't they didn't like each other. Our deficit was five and a half trillion dollars. You know what happened? They sat down as Americans and they brought the deficit down from five and a half trillion down to five trillion. And we hear those stories, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. Similar. They would get together and and they would talk about things. And they have a beer. Yeah. And have a beer. Exactly. I guess the question is, you talk about common sense. When did common sense become so uncommon, I guess? Hey, John, we could talk forever and I want to get you back here. But I want to once again mention the book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. And there is an awful lot of common sense in here. John, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's always a pleasure when we have you with us. And I will look forward to getting you back here and we'll continue this conversation. Well, I look forward because there's so much that me and you could put together and bring common sense Democrats, common sense Republicans together right. and, and save our city, save our state, save our country. We will look to- forward to having that conversation. John, you and do well I, now. You know what I tell people? Yeah. Buy my book and you'll make a billion dollars too. <laughs> we'll hold you to it. Thanks, John. You'll be well. Thank you. If you know anything, about music icon Bruce Springsteen, you know that he's a Jersey guy. Mostly the Jersey Shore, to be precise. So, might not be a surprise to learn that the Bruce Springsteen archives have found a home there at Monmouth University. But you might be surprised at the extent of the archives, how they arrived at their home at Monmouth, and how the project has expanded to now constitute the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music. The Archives and Center provide a fascinating collection of artifacts, exhibits, and programs for fans, scholars, historians, and the simply curious. Joining us now to talk about the creation of the Archives and the Center and what they have to offer is Bob Santelli, the executive director and Grammy Award-winning music historian, producer, and educator. And I should note a friend of mine from many years back from our days at Point Pleasant Beach High School. Bob, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. So how and why did the idea of gathering up the Bruce Springsteen archives and placing them at a particular location come about? The Bruce Springsteen archives has its origins actually in Asbury Park. There was an organization of fans called Friends of Bruce Springsteen that began to assemble photographs, newspaper articles, magazines, et cetera, and put them in Asbury Park Library. The Asbury Park Library couldn't handle it in terms of its size. Um, Myself and uh, my colleague, Eileen Chapman, we got involved and realized that this was too valuable to have it simply disappear or or not have it uh, at the um, disposal of people. So we moved it to Monmouth University. And uh, Monmouth University was very um, 
receptive to the idea. They gave us a place uh, to store the materials. And from that point on, which was about eight or nine years ago, the collection has grown significantly to the point now we're up to 37,000 pieces. Let's talk a little bit about Monmouth University as the repository. Why did that work as the location? Jack, you know, Monmouth works simply because of two or three reasons. Number one is that Bruce Springsteen's earliest fan base, when Monmouth University was Monmouth College, that's where the fans came from. Yeah. A few blocks away from Monmouth University, Bruce wrote Born to Run, maybe his most famous song. When I was a student at Monmouth University, then Monmouth College, I must have seen Bruce play Oh, a couple of dozen times in the at the university or at the college at the time. Uh, so his roots are very strong there. Plus, we wanted to be established with a um, academic institution. Monmouth University on the Jersey Shore is it. It just made total sense. And it has been. I should note, you mentioned that that you went there, you, you taught there. I've taught there in the past. I was on the board for a few years, many years back. And it's become, it's grown. It's become a nationally yeah. recognized doctoral um, institution with so many facilities. And this obviously is part of that. And I mentioned in, in the introduction that we have the Bruce Springsteen archives, which makes sense, but also the Center for American Music. How did that component come about? When we really um, began to be ambitious about what the Bruce Springsteen archives could be, I went to Bruce and, and said, uh, Bruce, you know, in addition to this collection that we have here, I have bigger, bolder, more ambitious ideas for this collection. And I, I explained it to Bruce what we wanted to do. And he, he was very silent. I was talking to him and uh, I couldn't tell whether he was receptive to the idea or not. Uh, at the end, he said, well, you know, it's a great thing that you're doing. However, putting all the attention on me is not right. I'm a chapter in the ongoing story of American music. If we can enlarge this to make it more encompassing, this make the story bigger, of which I am a part, that would work. And quite honestly, Jack, that's what I had in mind all along. I always envisioned Bruce basically being the uh, the catalyst or, or the poster boy, if you will, for this institution on American music because he he represents so many aspects of it. And so uh, we started to broaden the idea and uh, included now exhibitions, not just collections, but exhibitions, public programs, educational workshops, et cetera. So we're almost a full-blown institution now, the kind that we envisioned about six or seven years ago when I first went to him with the idea. I would suspect that when people hear that story, they would be surprised, especially at the element of somebody as big a star as Bruce Springsteen saying, no, 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 I don't want this to be all about me. I am a part of something bigger. As you know, you've been involved in the, the, the Grammy Museum, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As I mentioned, you're a music historian and educator. Were you surprised to hear him say, no, not just me. I want this to be much more expansive. You know, I, I really wasn't, Jack. And the reason why is I, I've known Bruce a long time as my uh, during my time when I was the Asbury Park Press music critic and first got to know him many years ago. Um, he, he he always came across as an amateur music historian, if you will. His knowledge of American music and his love of it, very strong. And he realizes uh, that he is a, a part of it. He is a big part, however, especially in the 20th century, of course. When you look at um, you know the titans or the big icons of American music, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, uh, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, 
Bruce's name is on there. And, and so having someone that powerful come to us and say, you know what? It's not all about me. The story's bigger. The story that's bigger needs to be told. I'd love to be a part of it, but the story's bigger. Yeah. Again, if you know, and I, I know Bruce just a little bit, but if you if you know him, it might be surprising to the rest of the world, but if you know him, it's not surprising there. Right. Let, let's talk about the process now of gathering up, as you said, more than 30,000 items and artifacts. How did you go about doing that? And then how did you go about positioning it physically at yeah. Monmouth University? Many of the pieces that we have, nearly all of them, Jack, are are basically donations. Um, fans who have been collectors of, of Bruce Springsteen memorabilia or tapes or photographs, whatever, they get up there in age, they realize their collection has served them personally for a number of years, but now they're looking for a a place to put it permanently. And they hear about us, they contact us. What we do essentially is we review what they have. Uh, you know, the, we don't want to be a repository for someone's addict, right? You know, where, <laughs> all they do, yeah, I have all this stuff, take it. Uh, it's more formal than that. In the early days, maybe that would work, but not anymore. I mean, we're, we're simply bursting at the seams right now. We have so much. Plus, we have all of Bruce's archives as well. And so when you add all of that up, it is a tremendous amount of material. In addition to the actual three-dimensional objects, as we say, we have a very large digital collection of interviews and oral histories and tapes and, and performances. So it's a, a full-fledged institution where it's not just about collections of photographs and magazines. It's far more than that. And it's going to require one of these days for us to, to grow and expand and, and, and actually find a new home somewhere on the Monmouth campus. Because I have to tell you, if you were to walk into where we are right now, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a home that we have basically transformed into a, an archival space. Um, we actually have collections in the bathtub. I guess that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is you have so much. The bad news is you have so much that you that's have to right. utilize exactly. the bathtub. Exactly. Let me ask about some of the other things that, that the archives and the, and the center do, because I, I mentioned you know, it's a collection, an, yeah. an archival collection, but I also talked about exhibits and programs. Tell us a little bit about some of that. Well, you know, that's where the idea, the ambitious idea came from that I mentioned before. We didn't want to be just a, a collection, uh, a repository, an archives. The traditional archives basically preserves and celebrates a particular artist or historical aspect, whatever. We wanted to put that to good use. And the idea that I presented to Bruce was we want to be active. We don't want to be a passive institution. And that would mean having concerts. That would mean having seminars, symposium, workshops, outreach with exhibitions. So for instance, right now we have an exhibition on Bruce Springsteen in Los Angeles called Bruce Springsteen Live, which celebrates Bruce as a live performer. Next week in Boston, we'll open up a Bob Dylan exhibit uh, that the, the archives, the Bruce Springsteen archives curated. It's a traveling exhibition on Dylan, one of Bruce Springsteen's main influences. Just this past weekend, we held a, a major symposium at Monmouth University celebrating, as you said, the 50th anniversary of Greetings from Asbury Park. 600 people attended the night before a sold out concert in Red Bank featuring one of the original E Street Band pianists, David Sanchez. So we're very, very active, not just in the collecting phase, but also in the um, 
experiential phase and the educational phase as well. I'm curious, and, and you and I talked about this briefly, but I'm curious about what drew you here. And you've touched on it a little bit, but as I mentioned before, you're you're a, a, a um, Grammy award-winning uh, music historian, producer, and educator. Uh, you were the executive director of the Grammy Museum. You were intimately involved in the creation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you've done a lot around the country. What What made you come home to this? Yeah. My wife keeps asking me that as well, Jack. And, and I, you know, it's a, it's a pretty clear answer to me. Number one, I'm, I'm a Jersey guy and, uh, my whole life, uh, has been somehow, some way connected to New Jersey music, New Jersey culture. I'm a Jersey shore guy, as you are too, growing up on the Jersey shore, very, very special place for me, for you and for Bruce. Right. I went to Monmouth university, then Monmouth college. It's where I got my start as a journalist. I won't forget that I taught there. And then quite honestly, I, um, you know, I, I have to say, as a music journalist, I rode Bruce Springsteen's coattails, Jack, to be honest with you. In the 70s, when I was just getting started, you know, he made himself available. Uh, I got the interviews. I wrote a book with Max Weinberg, the E Street Band drummer. I actually worked on Bruce's first book with him called Songs. It's given me a lot of opportunities. And so what I figured is my payback, my, my sense of um, showing my appreciation for all of that, for the state, for the region, for the university, for Bruce, is to create, use my skill set to create something that's long lasting, that's beneficial to him, to the state, to the region, to the university. And this is it. And so, you know, it might be my swan song, so to speak, but it's an important one, maybe the most important one for me. I got about 45 seconds here. So I'm going to ask you one quick question, but important question. And that is, what what is your vision for what this might become? It's going to become a nationally recognized institution. When I found out on Friday on Saturday that people came from Dublin, from London, from California to attend this, I realized the potential was pretty pretty incredible. And of course, with Bruce going on tour starting next month, the attention to him and the E Street Band will only elevate and, and accentuate what we're doing at the at the uh, archives. And the hope is that we find a place on America's cultural landscape and, and make a contribution. I want it to be useful. I want it to be important for him and to future Bruce Springsteen fans and scholars. Well, I think it'll it's there already and it's on the way to something bigger and better. The Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music located at Monmouth University. Bob Santelli, um, good friend. Bob, always good to talk with you and congratulations on what you're doing. And we'll keep an eye on it as it continues to grow. You be well now. Thank you, Jack. You too. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.